Jeremiah chapter number 18. And I'd like to begin reading at verse number 1. We're just going to read six short verses. If you're there with me, I want you to notice carefully. The Bible says, "...the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words." Verse 3 says, "...then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I just pray as that you give me unction and powers. I preach in a way that would glorify your Son. God, that you'd speak to each heart and that you'd accomplish your greatest desire for our lives this morning. Help us to be surrendered and submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Father, to be absorbent of the Word of God. I pray, Father, you would apply these truths in a particular way. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. Lord, they can't see it except through the Holy Ghost you show them their need of it. And I pray that they'd respond in submission, that they would accept your Son as their Savior. Father, we love you this morning. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm interested in verse number 6 by way of introduction. The Bible says, O house of Israel, cannot I, speaking of the Lord, do with you, speaking of Israel, as this potter, saith the Lord. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. One of the greatest sermon series I ever heard was by a preacher uh, by the name of uh, Brother Don Sable. A lot of you all know Brother Don. He preached a series on these two little words, as and so. And they present to us the idea of metaphor or allegory or simile in the Word of God. They point our attention to a particular activity or place or person, and they draw a parallel betwixt that and another truth. As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. The Bible teaches us that Jeremiah had a ministry that was doomed to failure. I think a lot of times when we think of great prophets in the Word of God, we like to think of Elijah. You know, he was a man. He was he was kind of a man's man. I mean, he was one of these that had a you know had a had a wrought iron for a backbone, and he worked outside, and he had a beard, and you just can't get no more handsome than a man with a beard. And you know, we we think of all the things that God did in the life of Elijah, and we think, oh, now that's a prophet. Maybe you think of Isaiah, this royal prophet, so to speak. Isaiah probably spent more time in the king's courts uh, than any other prophet. And God had given him favor with many uh, of the ruling people of that day. And God had given him a particular ear uh, or a particular voice there in the ears of the ruling class. Maybe you'd look at Daniel and you'd say, Oh, uh, if I could just be Daniel that refused the king's meat, that was cast into the lion den, whose window was always open and prayed and was faithful. We think of all these prophets. We could think of Moses. We could think of just various prophets in the Word of God. But I think in a lot of ways, Jeremiah was probably the most courageous prophet 
in all the Word of God. And you say, well, why is that? Well, it's one thing to serve God when you think you're going to succeed. It's an entirely different thing to serve God just to serve Him, even though you know you're going to fail. That wouldn't fly today in modern Christianity. You see, most uh, Christianity today is externally measured. Do you hear me now? Most ministries are externally measured today. We see a ministry, if it has a lot of people or a lot of money or a lot of influence or what have you, we say, well, that, you know, there's a lot to that, uh, you know, and, and that they must be successful. I'm not discounting ministries that have those things. I mean, God bless them for that. There's a lot of good ones that do. But do you know that it's one thing to serve God when everything's going well? It's an entirely different thing when God tells you from the outset, says you're not going to make any time with these people. You're not going to be able to succeed. You're going to be a failure. And that was what God told Jeremiah at the beginning of his ministry. He told Jeremiah, he said, these people are going to be hard-hearted, stiff-necked. They're not going to listen. I think this may have been the beginning of the Baptist church, don't you? <laughs> so they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to hear a thing that you're going to say. And you're going to struggle the entire time. So they're going to look to kill you. They're going to look to murder you. And they did, the Bible teaches. But Jeremiah persisted just the same. And the Bible teaches that in Jeremiah's ministry, the nation of uh, Judah was taken away captive. It was a time when great things, or uh, terrible things, we should say, awe-inspiring things were happening in the nation of Israel. I'm going to tuck this in here so I don't have to fool with it, and so you don't have to stare with it. Say amen right there. Isn't that a lot better? You get that short side going, and it's hard to do something with it. Amen? There we go. All right, uh, so Jeremiah was a courageous prophet of God. He was at a time when the nation of Israel was not going to turn to him. And we're early on in his ministry in this passage. And God begins to show a picture to Jeremiah. Now, I believe this picture is twofold because I believe it does picture the nation of Israel. But I believe it also pictures Jeremiah personally. And can I say that many of the things concerning the nation of Israel, uh, a parallel can also be drawn to the New Testament church. Now, let me say very clearly, I do not believe that the New Testament church is the nation of Israel, nor do I believe that the nation of Israel in an ethnic or in a uh, racial sense is the New Testament church. I believe there's plenty of uh, Jews that have come to know Christ and they're part of both. Uh, but I am not trying to draw a similitude uh, entirely. I'm not trying to say these things are synonymous. But, but I'm saying when you look at the way God did dealt with his people, you find some parallels to how he deals with them today. Uh, you see, do you believe the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do you believe that this morning? Everybody, I think my tie threw everybody off. Are we okay? You look like you're about four steps ahead of me, and I'm still three steps behind you or something. You see, the nation of Israel, God dealt with his people, and he deals with them the same way in a lot of ways today. And so we can find some parallels here. We can find some ideas here. And I might say this, and don't brand me a heretic when I say this, but I, I don't think we'd be do damage, doing damage to the Scriptures if we were to say this morning that just as the Bible says that the clay is a picture of the nation of Israel, that the potter is a picture of the Lord, I would say it would be safe to say that in a lot of ways, Brother Ralph, you and I are a picture of the clay as well. Don't you think so? I, the Bible tells this story of how Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, pottery making. I don't know if any of you have done it or if you do it now. If you do, I'd like you to make me something. But if you don't, that's fine. You can just buy it store-bought. But 
you know, the, typically the way that this would be done is there would be uh, two great stones. Nowadays, you would see them made out of wood or maybe even a synthetic material today. Uh, but there would be two great stones. There'd be an upper stone and a lower stone. And that lower stone would be operated by the feet of the potter. And he would uh, turn through a series of, of cranks or of pulleys or of gears of some type. He would turn this stone and it would push around and it would spin that upper stone at a rapid rate of speed. The potter would take the clay and it would just be simple clay and he would take it and he would mold it and he would break it apart and he'd throw it down and he'd beat it all to pieces. You ever felt like God was doing that with you? <laughs> and he would, he would mold it around and he would put it and he would wet it and he would set it upon this stone. And as that stone would begin to spin around, uh, the uh, force of it would begin to allow that potter to be able to mold this clay into something. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but real pottery, it's always round. You ever notice that? There's a reason for that. It's been on the potter's wheel. And God says to Jeremiah, says, Jeremiah, when you go down and when you see that potter working with his potter's wheel, you're going to learn some things about the way I deal with my people. And this morning, I'd like us to go down to this potter's house and learn some things about how God deals with His people when they've messed up. I want us to notice, first off, the material that the potter chooses. Uh, now, it says it right there in the text. But most of us would know, even if it hadn't said it, that a potter typically uses clay. Clay. Now, you can find clay uh, just about anywhere. Uh, clay is a common thing. And I began to think about this clay, Brother Ralph, and I began to think, you know, uh, what's the purpose in the clay? Why did God use clay to be a picture of mankind? We could look at the fact that man was formed of the dust of the ground. I believe that would be a very apt application. Uh, God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, breathed into him the breath of life, and certainly uh, we have some connections to that, there's no question. But I don't believe that's necessarily it. Uh, we could look at the fact that uh, clay is a prevalent thing. I believe that's true. Uh, but I don't know that that's... Let me give you four things very quickly that I notice about this clay. I want you to notice first off the popularity of this material. You can go just about anywhere and find clay, Brother Charlie. I mean, it's a common thing. I, I mean, if the potter was making pottery out of diamonds, that'd be one thing. But he didn't use diamonds, he used clay. It was just simple little old clay. It was absolutely insignificant in everybody's eyes but the potter. You see, when you and I, when we see clay, we just see a mess. When the potter sees clay, he sees potential. It doesn't mean anything to us. And we look around at this world and we just wonder to ourselves, you know, how could God use people for His glory and for His honor? But do you know that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 that God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the mighty? Can I encourage you by saying this? You may be saying, well, I'm not much of anything. Well, maybe you're not. I'm not either. But do you know that God can a lot sooner use somebody that's nothing than somebody that thinks they're absolutely everything? Pride is the most paralyzing component in the human spirit. When we allow pride to enter into our ideal system and our experience, we immediately push away the hands of God and say, you can no longer do anything with me. The Bible speaks of uh, pride and it speaks of how that God would give grace to the humble in James uh, chapter number 4, I believe it is. But do you know what God has to do with the prideful? It says that He has to abase them. Do you know there's a lot of different ways to give grace? But no matter what instrumentality you use to abase something, you're basically just bringing it down to size. 
In other words, God can do a lot of things with a man that's humble. But a man that's prideful, he can only do one thing with, and that's abase him and bring him to a place where he's usable once again. We tend to think of ourselves as something. And that's part of the reason we don't think much of the Lord is because we think so much of ourselves. Isn't that right? I know that's not easy, but that's the truth. That's part of the reason we don't think very much of the Lord because we think so much of ourselves. I was talking to somebody and I, they were talking about, about people that are unfaithful to the house of God. And there are people that are like that. There's good people that are like that. There's people that, to a degree, they love the Lord. But I made the statement to him. I said, it's because of how much we think of ourselves. God gives us six days to take care of what we need to take care of and asks for one day to be hallowed and sacredly devoted unto Him. We think so little of Him that we say, I need your day. You can't have one of my six. Now stop and think about that for a minute. I'm not preaching on this, but, that, but stop and think about it for a minute. We have six days to do that which we need to do. But we think so much of ourselves and so little of God, we say, Lord, you, that one day, that, it's more important that I have that than that you have that. We say, I don't know how I got to preaching on this, Brother Rabbit. You know, the Holy Spirit's been doing that to me lately. I've been wanting to preach on this, and every time I get in here, the Holy Ghost says, no, you walk over here and preach on this. I don't plan that, Brother Ralph, but that seems to be how it happens. I believe we'd be good if we just followed Him, don't you think? You follow me, you'll get in a ditch. But if we'll follow the liberty and leading of the Holy Spirit, I believe we'll wind up in the right place. We see the plainness or the popularity of this clay. I mean, this clay was nothing special. It can be found anywhere. But I want you to notice not only the plainness of it, but notice the price of it. It's essentially worthless. It's dirt. That's what it is, isn't it? It's dirt. It's worthless. The average person would see no value in it. You know why? Because of the abundance of it. Many of you may have heard the story before about the explorer uh, that went into the deepest and darkest uh, heart of Africa. And he came upon a village of, uh, of Africans there. And there were some people that were uh, playing marbles. And he saw these little kids and they were playing. I mean, these, they had never seen anyone before. They were totally isolated in this place. And they were playing marbles. And that uh, adventurer, that explorer, was watching them and watching them and watching them. And he began to notice the beauty of these marbles that they were playing with. And uh, he, he got a little closer and he examined and examined and examined. He couldn't figure out what kind of marbles they were. So finally, he stopped the youngins and he said, let me see those marbles that you're using. And he picked one of them up and it was a diamond about that big around. These kids were playing marbles. You know why? It had no meaning in their value system. It meant nothing to them. They were playing marbles because it meant nothing to them. They had an abundance of them. You see, the reason that we don't value human life is because there is an abundance of it today, and we think that human life is an insignificant thing. So I don't know if I believe that. Well, ever since Roe v. Wade, we've aborted 40-something million unborn children, not fetuses, children. We don't value life in this country. We wonder why we got such a crime problem. Something's wrong. Listen to me. Something's wrong. Something's wrong when you can go to jail for putting your dog down, but you can abort a child and you get applauded. Isn't that right? I mean, isn't that, isn't that wrong? Isn't something, isn't something upsetting about that to you? That ought to disturb us today. We have no value to life. But do you know that this world looks at Christians and sees absolutely no value in them? None whatsoever. Looks at Christians and thinks, well, there's, there's absolutely no value in them whatsoever. But do you know that God looks at us, and though we may be insignificant, though we may not be much, God looks at us and sees value in us? There, there was a cost. I know the world wouldn't do much for you and I, but do you know that Christ was willing to die for us? That shows you how much He values us. 
today. We see the price of it. I don't know how far I'll get in this. We see the price of the clay, but we see the potential of it. One thing about clay, you can do anything with it. Isn't that right? That clay is nothing until the potter makes it something. Just a lump of insignificant dirt, but the potter can take it and make something beautiful and magnificent about it. We could go into the potter's house and look upon the shelves that line his walls and we'd see all these glorious vessels uh, there sitting upon shelves, all sorts of beautiful colors and beautiful designs and beautiful uh, structures to them. And every one of them began as just a lump of dirt. We think in terms today of big Christians and little Christians. Do you know that? Most of us do. We think in terms of big Christians and little Christians. But do you know that God just sees clay that can be molded for His glory and for His honor? Do you know if you're what the potter wants you to be, that's the greatest thing you can aspire to? We want to be a a vessel like another person's vessel, don't we? We want our vessel to look like their vessel. We want a vessel that's bigger than their vessel. Uh, We want in some way to outdo someone else. Do you know what the clay desires? Absolutely nothing. We see the prerequisite of it. Isn't that funny how that worked out? I wasn't even going to preach it, but it just happened. We see the prerequisite of it. It has to have absolutely no will, no desire. The clay doesn't argue with the potter about how it's to be made. The clay has no opinion in the matter. Now, I I get that this is totally contrary to everything we've been taught today uh, by state schools and by Hollywood. I understand that. But do you realize, now this is going to be earth-shattering. I know this. Are you ready? You might want to take a deep breath. You're not the center of the universe, and neither am I. I know that's hard for us because we've never been taught that before. We've never been taught that we're not the center of the universe. We've never been taught... Listen, I I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, it's a funny thing. When I was growing up, when I was a kid, do you know my opinion didn't matter? Oh, I know, that's child abuse to some of us. When I was growing up, my opinion didn't matter. What do you want for supper? They they didn't ask me that. (laughs) They just told me when it was happening. And if I showed up, I, I ate. Amen? And if I didn't, I was hungry. I had no opinion in it, Brother Austin. No opinion in it. But do you know that was good for me? Do you know why? Because I didn't understand the end result of what my parents were doing in my life. The clay does not understand what the potter is doing. He can't, nor should he. The potter is the one that has the total sovereign authority and will over his life. We see the material of it. I'm just going to go through this quick because I've run out of time. I don't know if you spent all the time or if I spent all the time, but someone spent all of it. But I want us to know first off the making of this clay. Notice first off the whirling. I believe, Brother Ralph, if I've studied this correctly, I believe that the potter is a picture of God in our lives. I believe the clay is a picture of you and I in our lives. But we find a third component, and the Bible is very clear about it. It says that the potter wrought a work upon the wheels. I believe these wheels picture our circumstance and our life and the existence that we have. And do you know what the first thing that has to happen? Before the potter can do anything with the clay, before even the first indention can be made, he has to put that clay upon the wheel, and it has to start spinning. You know, isn't that just like the life that we live Sometimes we think of life as spinning us head over heels. We're tumbling, we're falling, we're twisting, and we don't understand what God is doing in our lives. But do you know that God has to bring us to a place where we're malleable? If that potter was to try to rub his hands around that clay before it's spinning, he'd make a mess of it. But do you know that the centrifugal force 
that is exerted from the spinning of that wheel is what gives balance and malleable qualities to the clay. If the wheel's not spinning, Brother Charlie, the clay can't be molded. Is your wheel spinning this morning? You know, we don't really know the hurts people are going through. Do you know that? That's the truth of the matter. We come to church, we put on our ties, our suits, our makeup. I don't, but you do, some of you. We, we wear deodorant once a week. We do these things and we come to church and we bring our Bibles and we put on our smiles. And I'm not saying that some people aren't genuine. And I'm not saying that if you've got hurts, you're not being genuine. I'm merely saying this, that when we come here, we don't come here to brandish our problems to people. There's hurts going on in this room you'd never dream of. There's pain going on in this room you'd never dream of. Turmoil going on in this room that you'd never dream of. And your wheel may feel like it's sitting dead still, but I promise you there's people around you that it's spinning what seems to them like out of control. We see the whirling, but we see the working. As this is whirling, you know what the potter does? He doesn't try to slow it down. He doesn't try to stop it. Instead, he takes his hands and he begins to put pressure upon it. You see, without pressure, the clay can't become the vessel. You know, sometimes we feel like God asks too much of us. I'm saying what some people want this morning. We think God asks too much of us sometimes. We think He asks too much of us in our faithfulness, our giving, in our sacrifices, in our separation. And if you used to be honest, there's been times when you felt like God was being unfair in what He expected of you. He didn't like the pressure. And sometimes it's not just the pressure that God puts upon us through His Word or the expectations of it, but through the circumstances of life. You ever felt like if one more thing happened, you was going to lose it? You ever felt like if just one more thing happened, if one more thing went wrong, that was it? That's the pressure that the potter's putting upon you. Only through pressure can He mold. Only through pressure can He form. Only through the difficulties that you're experiencing and encountering can God make you what He desires for you to be. Do you realize that God is not a sadist? God, God is not devious. God does not hate His children. Do you know that God does not want to see you suffer? If He allows you to suffer, it's because there's a greater purpose in it. Because we see the design. We see the wisdom behind it. Potter is doing something that is known only in his mind. Clay cannot understand it. The clay can never find the purpose of it for the Ralph. But there is purpose in it. Can I encourage you by saying, you may not understand what's going on in your life right now, but there is something going on. <laughs> I, I, I'm interested in how it says it. It does not just say that he formed it. It says he wrought a work upon the wheel. That word work has the ideas of, uh, of strategy, of focus, of purpose, of wisdom, of design. In other words, God's not playing fast and loose with us this morning. God's doing something in our lives. We may not understand it. You say, well, I don't want to follow a God I can't understand. Then the only God you want to follow is your own self. You're the one that got you into this, amen? I'm the one that got me into this. I'm not being ugly, I'm being serious this morning. We're the ones that got us into this. If we keep following us, we're going to go deeper. You see, the clay left unto itself is absolutely nothing. Only in the potter's hands can it become something of value. And only in the hands of God can we be anything of value. We see the making of this vessel, but we see the marring of this vessel. The Bible says that it was marred 
in the hands of the potter. I began to think what could cause pottery to be marred. This word marred literally means spoilt, polluted, corrupted. And there's really not a lot of things that can go wrong. It's like fixing old cars. You know, when you're working on a new car today, it could be anything. I mean, you could, you could, you could accidentally set your microwave wrong and tear up your car that's in the driveway today. Is that not right? I mean, it's unreal. The way trucks was back 30 years ago, 40 years ago, if it was broke, you'd open the hood, take a step ladder, climb in, And start working on it. Have your wife bring you supper. You'd eat it inside the the engine bay of the truck. You had enough room to. There there wasn't a lot that could go wrong with them, and they were simple. And clay's the same way. There's not a lot that can go wrong. Do you know that in our lives there's basically only two things that goes wrong that causes us to be marred? Listen carefully. The first is that it can tumble. It can tumble. As it's spinning upon the wheel, if it's not formed in such a way, or if there's something intrinsic to the clay, a weakness in its makeup, it can tumble while it's on the wheel. You know, I got to thinking about it, and do you know that a lot of times the very reason our lives are such a wreck is because we've made a misstep in following the will of God. We've stepped out of the will of God. It's not necessarily that we have some big obvious sin in our life, but it's simply that somewhere along the way, our will and God's will were contrary one to the other. And instead of mortifying our will, we exalted our will and followed what we desired, what we wanted. We said, God, if that's what you want for my life, you're not going to get it. I'm going to do it my way. And we tumbled. We tumbled. You'll find you tumble once, you'll tumble over and over and over again. Most of the time when we step out of the will of God, it's a de- in fact, I'd say every time we get out of the will of God, it's a deliberate decision. But many mistakes are made afterwards. Many mistakes. You know, you find that true in the life of the Apostle Paul. I'm, I just preached this the other day, and I'm not going to preach it right now, but I'm just going to give it to you. When he made up his mind he was going to Jerusalem, he said, none of these things move me, neither count on my life so dear. He said, I'm going, I don't care what God thinks about it. God had tried to tell him several times that he was stepping outside of the will of God. He said, I'm doing this. After he stepped outside of the will of God, do you know you see in his life several mistakes that take place. Things Paul never intended. It began with a deliberate step, but afterwards he began to make mistakes. Sometimes they tumble. But then there's another reason. Because of trump- tumbling, but also because of trash. Sometimes the, the vessel will uh, collapse because there's something foreign that doesn't belong in it, Brother Ralph. Something that has no business in there. And do you know that a lot of times the clay is marred because there's something foreign, some piece of trash that we've allowed in our lives, some, some piece of sin, something in our lives that has polluted our walk with the Lord. And it causes us to stumble. Can I say that sin will always be destructive? I was talking to my young people this, this morning. I guess you'd say young people, some of my age, some of them not. But I, I was preaching to them about the devil this morning. And do you know uh, that the devil, all he is looking for is for you to take one misstep. That's all he needs to take advantage of it. Get something in your life. We better understand how dangerous sin is this morning. We better understand what that little piece... It can just be a pebble, and it's enough to collapse the clay. Just a pebble. We see the cause, but notice the context. The context. This blessed me. I hope it does you. Do you know that even when it was marred, it never left the potter's hands? Even when it was marred, it never left the pot. It says it deliberately, Brother Charlie. Deliberately. We have a deliberate book right there, and it says it deliberately. It says it was marred in the potter's hands. I'm thankful 
And this is basically the thrust of the whole message. But I'm thankful. I am thankful that when I get messed up, God don't pitch me out, aren't you? And do you know, listen, and this is a deep truth, and I don't know if I'll be able to convey it. But do you know that God is sovereign even over our mistakes? Even when we make a mistake, God is still in control of the situation. And you say, reconcile that to me. No, I can't because I'm not God. But I know the Bible teaches it. He is always, always, always in control of what's taking place. You may say, preacher, you don't get how bad I've messed up. Well, you don't get how big my God is. You don't understand how I've wrecked things. I mean, I've made a mess. Well, you don't, you don't understand how forgiving my God is. We see the context of it, but we see the condition of it. What's denoted by the fact that it was in the potter's hands? Two things. One, that the potter still had control of it. But another is the condition of this clay. You see, what it's saying is this. The potter did not take his hands off of it, set it over to the side or put it in a kiln and try to dry it, walk away, and then that mistake or that, that mar, that tumbling or that cracking take place when he had stepped away from it. It was while it was still in his hands. You know what that implies to me? It implies that the clay was still wet and moldable. You know why the potter didn't throw it out? Because even though it was marred, it was still moldable. You know when the potter does throw it out? When it's dried up and hardened, and he can do nothing with it again. You know, the Bible says, He that being oft reproved hardeneth his neck shall be utterly destroyed, and that without remedy. I know that's not... That's not bright and sunshiny. and that, I mean, that's not the best part of waking up is folders in your cup. But I'm telling you a truth this morning. When, we, uh, when things like this happen in our life, the very thing that allows God to work in our lives is when we will admit that we've messed up and when we'll submit ourselves to the potter's hands. We see the marring, but we see the mending of this vessel. There's a lot of things that intrigue me here. But I want to give you a few of them. I want you to notice first off the retention of this vessel. That potter could have thrown it out, but he chose not to. Instead, he retained this vessel. He took it, he reshaped it, he remolded it. And I got to thinking about that. And I, you know, there was a verse that struck in my mind as I was thinking about that. Why is it that the potter does that? It's just clay. It's just clay, Brother Charlie. It's just dirt. He'd go out and scoop up another handful. Why would he go to the trouble of doing it? You know, I got to thinking about that word potter in the Word of God. It's found several times. But do you know that one of the last times that it's spoken, not the very last time, but is in the book of Matthew, chapter 27. And the Bible teaches that after Judas had betrayed our Lord and sold him into the hands of the Pharisees, he took the 30 pieces of silver... And uh, because of his guilt, he took and he went to the high priest and he cast it down before him. He said, this is, this is innocent uh, blood money. This is the blood money of an innocent man. I've sold innocent blood. This is no good to me. I can't live with myself. And so he goes out and he hangs himself. Well, the Bible teaches us that the Pharisees took that money and they said, we can't use this money. The high priest said we can't use this money in the tabernacle because this is the price of blood. So they went out and they bought a field, and it's called the potter's field in the Word of God. And I got to studying about that potter's field. And do you know what I found? Well, you know why they call it a potter's field? Because that was the place where potters would go 
and discard their old, used-up clay. You see, if they were as this potter in the book of Jeremiah, and they had been making a vessel, and it got marred, and they didn't want to fool with it, they'd go out to this field, and they'd take and they'd just pitch it down in the potter's field. I got to thinking about that. And I thought, you know, maybe I don't... You know, I tried to bless three or four people with this. None of them got it, so I hope you do. If not, I'm going to have to shout, and you're going to have to watch. Do you know why it is that he couldn't throw the clay away? The reason is because after the cross of Calvary, there was no more potter's field. Do you get that? Whole morning was worth just that, wasn't it? (laughs) You see, after the price had been paid, after the Savior had been sold, the potter's field was bought, it was made a graveyard, and now the potter says, I've got messed up clay, there's nothing I can do with it. I'll go out and I'll throw it out. And he has to say, whoop, wait a minute. I don't have anywhere to throw it away anymore. I guess I'm going to have to remake it. (laughs) Do you know the reason? Do you know the reason that God can remake the clay in our lives? It's because of a hill called Mount Calvary. He can forgive us. He can remold us. He can remake us. He doesn't have to throw us away because we see the redemption of the clay. He took it, and you know what he did? He molded it into, into a, another vessel. The Bible says, to his liking. To his liking. God is forming all these things and accomplishing all these things in our lives that we do not understand, that we might be found unto His praise and honor and glory. And we see, and I'm done with this. I was done a second ago when I said that, but I had to finish this. Amen. (laughs) I want you to notice finally the revelation of the vessel. Where does a vessel end up? Well, uh, a lot of things can happen to it. It can be sold. It can be used. There's a lot of things that can happen to it. But I don't believe that's what happened to this vessel. Do you know why? Because the Bible does not say that the potter made a vessel like unto another man's liking. It does not say that he made a vessel like unto great use. But rather it says that he made the vessel unto his liking. See, this vessel was being made for his pleasure and for his glory. And I thought about what you would do. Some of you ladies, uh, it's getting to be less and less popular today, but some of you ladies, probably somewhere in your house, you have a vase, do you not? And you've got it, and you might keep flowers in it, you might not, but you could use an old uh, mason jar, keep flowers in if you wanted to, but you have that vase because it's beautiful, and it complements your house. Now, what if you had made that vase? You know what you might say to people? People come over to your house and they'd say, oh, what a pretty vase you have. And you know what you might be apt to say? You might be apt to say, yeah, you know, I made that. I made that. And what you're doing is you're allowing it to be displayed for your glory. The potter made this vessel to his liking for his glory. And there comes a day, there comes a day, where he takes it off the wheel. He allows it to dry. He adorns it with that which is becoming of it. And he places it on a shelf. Can I read an ensemble of verses that I believe will explain to you what I'm trying to say here? Listen to what the Bible says about you and I in Ephesians chapter 3. Verse number 8 says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given? 
that I should preach among the Gentiles, listen now, the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know what the clay benefits the potter? The potter certainly benefits the clay, doesn't he? Because he can make that clay something of value. Do you know what the clay benefits the potter? It's a vehicle of revelation. It allows him to convey to others' eyes what is known only in his mind. Paul says, I'm here to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now, listen, under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say, what are you driving at? I'm saying this. The wheel is a picture of life, correct? The turmoil of life. The kiln, we might say, could be a picture of judgment. The clay is a picture of the human life. And the potter is a picture of God. There comes a day when all of the forming and all of the molding is finished. When there's no more use for the wheel. Do you know there's coming a day when this life will end? The turmoil of this life will end. The pain of this life will end. There's no more wheel. There's no more working. There's no more pressure anymore. The hands of the potter do not have to be laid against it in a, in a pressured way any longer. It's exactly what he would have it to be. And do you know there comes a day when there's no more wondering about what it'll look like? This mystery from the beginning, the eternal purpose of Jesus. What I'm saying is this. There's coming a day when the turmoil and pain of this life's going to be over. And we're going to be exactly what He would have us to be. And do you know what our purpose is? God's going to take you and me, and in a, in a metaphoric way, He's going to place us on the shelf there. You see, there's going to be, that, that in, throughout eternity, there's going to be angels, and they know nothing of the potter. There's, there, there very likely will be uh, other people that have not lived through this day of grace. They don't know anything about the potter. They know nothing of sin-fallen man. They know nothing of a cross of Calvary. They know nothing of shed blood. They know nothing of a sinner's perfect plea. They don't understand any of it. And you say, well, how will they know something about it? They'll look on the shelf. And they'll see you and I that have been saved by God's amazing grace. They'll see us, the clay that was marred in sin's dark valleys. They'll see us that was broken and battered and useless that the potter took and molded into something for His glory and for His honor.